You are now listening to the January 14th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Psalms, This Is My Song, Sermon, and Equipping the Saints. First, let's begin with Psalms, This Is My Song. Hello, heart and soul, gospel ministry listeners. This is Terry with Psalms, This Is My Song the program where we confess our hearts to the Lord. Have you ever asked yourself, what does it mean to leave everything to God? Does that mean I do not have to do anything? Have you ever wondered like this during your life with the Lord? I did, and a lot as a matter of fact. When I am faced with problems, I try my hardest to resolve them, searching for ways to take care of them. But when I read from the Bible where it says to leave all my worries to the Lord, to leave my life to God, to cast my burdens upon Him, to be silent and to stay still, I wonder and contemplate it a lot with questions. Questions like, am I trying to solve these problems on my own? But would I really be okay if I did not take any action? What if I lose an opportunity because I didn't do anything about it? What if God gives the opportunity to someone else because I stayed still? How about you? Have you ever experienced what it means to trust God and leave everything to the Lord amidst such worries? As you know, we live in a world in which we have to be responsible for our own lives. The world considers people who cannot take care of their lives as irresponsible and worthless. And thoughts like these affect our spiritual lives and sometimes cause us to try to resolve things that are happening in our own lives on our own and try to reach heaven on our own effort. So when we do not do anything about what is happening in our lives, we often see ourselves in fear. There is a chapter from the book of Psalms that make us consider what it means to leave things to God. It is Psalm chapter 46. Here is the first part of Psalm chapter 46, verse 10. Cease striving and know that I am God. Cease striving or be still and know that I am God. I believe this is a verse that we must take to heart when we live such a busy and competitive worldly life. The Hebrew word for to be still is rapa. It does not mean simply to be quiet and do nothing. The original definition of rapa is to sink. It means sinking in water. It signifies how people become weak and lose strength because they are sinking. It also signifies how people let go of things from what they are holding to because they lose strength. So, rapa can be translated to let go, leave, desert, become alone, lose strength, become weak, or even become lazy. So what does it mean to cease striving or be still is to let go of my own strength and my own thoughts. It means to weaken my strength and my thoughts. God tells us to see how God is God by letting go of my strength, my thoughts, and my efforts. That's right. We cannot experience how God is God when we depend on our own strength, thoughts, and efforts. It is because we try to do everything on our own. 
That is why God tells us to let go of ourselves and experience God. Then how does God allow us to experience how God is God? Psalm chapter 46 starts with verse 1 by saying how God is our refuge and strength and how He is the great help in times of trouble. Also, throughout Psalm 46, it is described that even if the mountains, seas, or earth quake and tremble, God resides above them all. And even if all the nations of the world are in an uproar, He can quiet them down. The refuge in verse 1 is a place where we can be kept safe from danger or trouble. That is why a refuge is where we can go to stay protected. In verses 7 and 11, a word stronghold is used to describe God's character in addition to Him being a refuge. The word refuge means a place where we can stay safe from danger. The word stronghold, which is misgab in Hebrew, means high cliff. No one can easily attack when people are on a high cliff. Because God is our high cliff, no one can come that high and attack us if we reside in Him. We live in such a difficult period of time. Our health is challenged due to pandemic, and that even caused us financial hardship throughout the world. From where can we get help? How can we solve these problems all on our own? Can there be anyone who can solve all these problems from the roots other than God himself? I hope we can all experience how God is God by letting go of our strength, knowledge, experiences, and efforts that we rely on during this difficult time. When each of us has faithful trust, asks God for help, and goes out to Him, God is so faithful that He will allow us to experience His wonderful works and grace, and we will all praise Him. i like to finish today's stroll with Psalms by reading Psalm chapter 46 together. God is our refuge and strength a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change, and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. Selah There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her, she will not be moved, God will help her when morning dawns. The nations make an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord, who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot with fire. See striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Selah.
And I will hold on to you Everything I lay down, oh Lord Down at your Lord, you 
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Calvary Phoenix in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is giving evidence for your faith. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark. We have been looking at what the Bible said before our baptism week last week. We were talking about what the Bible says about generosity. We were looking at the church of Philippi. We were in the book of Acts, looking at this church of Philippi that Paul planted. And then it dawned us that 10 years later, Paul wrote a letter to them called the book of Philippians. And we could read the letter of the book to the Philippians and we could find out something about that church, how that church was a decade later. And so we've seen a lot of things in many of the things that we've seen About that church, we've had real application to our own lives. And as I was thinking about their generosity last time, it made me think about giving. And I'm thinking, as you grow and mature in your Christian life, the Lord's going to begin to talk to you about finances. It's part of Christian growth. You're a new believer or you were stunted in your walk with the Lord, you've known the Lord a while, but now you're beginning to grow in the Lord, well, this is something the Lord begins to talk to you about. And it's another big step up in your walk with Jesus. You see that everything you own belongs to Jesus, and he gives you the strength to make the living, earn the money that you earn. It's all him. And as we are saved and we're growing in the Lord, begin to understand these things. And what I found out, and we shared a couple weeks ago, is that God wants us to give generously. Uh, Jesus said famously, it is more blessed to what? Give than it is to receive. Now, God wants you to give generously. He also wants you to give to him your best. God wants your best. I want you to go to the book of Proverbs We saw it, uh, this is kind of refreshing, we've seen it before, Proverbs chapter 3. And come on, you guys, let's see, we can beat those guys with devices, okay? Come on, come on, we'll do it. You know how you're going to beat them? You see their device? You're going to hit that device with your elbow right now, and you're going to beat them. All right, go ahead, you have permission. Okay, we're going to look at Proverbs chapter 3. And let's look at verse 9. Let's read it. You guys, read it together. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Honor the Lord with everything you own, given the first and the best. That's what that means. And then it goes on in verse two, uh, 10 to say, then your barns will be filled with plenty. We don't have barns that are filled and we don't have vats full of wine. But he's talking about God will provide for you and he'll do so generously. Honor him with the first fruits. That's off the top. I think it's very clear that God wants us to give him the first and he wants us to give him the best, not the leftovers. I'm not going to have you come over to our house and say, why don't you come on over? We'll serve you leftovers. No, we won't do that. We want to serve you our best. And of course, if God's coming over, I'm going to serve God my very best. Our house is going to smell like fresh paint. You know what I'm saying? We're going to clean it all up for him. And the Lord wants the best from us. Chuck Swindoll writes, 
We honor God by first giving to him from our paycheck. In doing so, we acknowledge his ownership of everything before we enjoy any of it ourselves. Whatever your income, give a portion to the Lord first. He will be honored and glorified by your trust. Now, our natural inclination in times like this, times like of a recession and inflation and all, is to, is to get tight. It's to pull in. It's to uh, kind of put a freeze on our generosity. That is natural, all right? I'm just saying, that's natural. I feel the same way. Like, <sighs> we, we almost get anxious when we give. Look, Jesus says, talking about scary times in life, be anxious for how much? Nothing. Don't worry about anything. God will take care of you. And what I have to remind myself during those anxious times is, wait a minute, I'm thinking like God isn't going to take care of me. I'm living like I don't have a father in heaven. I'm living like I am an orphan and I'm dependent on some else, somewhere else for my livelihood. God says he'll take care of me. And so we trust God. You honor him from the first. You give God the first of whatever you have and leave the rest to God. He will take care of you. Amen? Don't follow that natural fleshly inclination. And you're not going to have to cope all by yourselves with your finances. You're not left alone. Now God is in the mix. Giving to God builds trust and faith. The next thing, and this is, is something we didn't look at, is to give faithfully to God. Give regularly. Don't give hit and miss. Or sporadically, you know, like emotionally maybe. It's easy to forget to give if you don't have a plan. Amen? I mean, it is. It is. A week goes by and you forget to give that week or you're not here for three weeks and you come back and you give one week. Well, what about the other three weeks? So you didn't have a plan to take care of things. But all the costs, all the outreaches, everything went on while you were away. It's not like, oh, you're not here. Everything stopped because Mark wasn't at church. No, everything keeps going on. All the outreaches, all the missions, all the people being touched, it keeps going on. So prayerfully ask God what your plan's going to be. And prayerfully ask God, what amount should I give you? And this is what I want you to look right now. Of what you're giving to God, give faithfully. Of what you're giving to God right now, are you giving what percent? Think about what you give, and maybe you're not the mathematical person right now. But think about, get some time, think about what percentage of your income are you giving to God? And compare that to the percentages that you're giving to other things in your life. And you know what? It begins to show where priorities are. And we accidentally, as Christians, will not put the Lord first in our priorities, and we're not even thinking about it. Leslie and I can both testify to it. We've always tithed, always. We've always given the Lord our first fruits off the top. We don't even think of it as belonging to us. We always live on 90%. Always. 
Um, so when we got married, we just continued with the practice of how we grew up. Um, and when we first got married, it was tough. We had really hard times, very difficult times. If you're a young family and you're going through tough times, we could share stories as we went through those times, but we still gave to God. We gave the tithes to the Lord. And you know what? I don't know how, but God took care of all the bills. God took care of an emergency seizure with one of our daughters. It had to be an ambulance ride, a helicopter ride from Sedona to Children's Hospital. I mean, God took care of all of that, and we were poor. We didn't have much money. And somehow, I don't know, he took care of it. He takes care of his kids. It's tried and true. I remember we've seen the Lord work in oh, amazing ways. I've got stories. I could go on and on, but I'll save our stories for later. We've just seen the Lord's faithfulness every day. There are times when we've decided we're going to give more to the Lord, and it might be a sizable amount for us, and I know it sounds cliche, but it really happens. A check or a gift or some way, that same amount comes back to us. And we'll realize, you know what? That's what we just gave to the Lord. See, the Lord really, he's saying, you know what? It's, here it's back. You know what I really want, kiddo, is faith. What I really want is trust. It's not so much that I'm broke, right? He's not broke. But his work, needs, his work needs support. But he's saying, I need you to trust me. I need you to find out for yourself that this is tried and true. Somebody say amen. amen. Well, I don't make enough money to tithe. Well, maybe you need to ask yourself, how's that been working out, right? How's that been working out? The Bible says you give and let's see what the Lord does in blessing you. Now, Warren Wearsby said, yes, giving is an act of faith, but God rewards that faith in every way. That isn't the reason we give, because that kind of motivation would be selfish. If you give because it pays, it won't pay. We give because we love God, amen? And we want to obey him, amen? And he's been very generous with us, amen? When we lay up treasures in heaven, they pay rich dividends for all eternity. I want to ask Pastor Zach and, and Ellie to come up here and share some stuff with us. Good morning, church. Good morning. As you can see, this morning we're doing a talk about money. Pastor Mark is sharing about generosity and tithing and giving our offerings. And this is always a touchy subject here because it's, our money. And sharing about money at church is always a difficult subject because money is important to us. And even though it is a difficult message that he's sharing this morning, it's a sermon that we have to share. It's something that we have to talk about because the truth is, without all of your generous tithes and offerings, we wouldn't be here right now, right? We wouldn't be able to be in this wonderful building here at this campus, over at the central campus. We wouldn't be able to do all of the amazing things that Calvary Phoenix does, not just every week, but every single day. We're seeing 
transformation happen in our communities, at our schools, and on our campuses. So Pastor Mark has asked Ellie and myself to share just a little bit of the vision, really the vision behind why we give, and a few testimonies. We want to share some testimonies from actually some of you out there of what living with open hands toward God can look like. So if you didn't know, the vision of our church, of Calvary Phoenix, is to point people to Jesus. That's what we do in everything we do here. We are trying to point people to Jesus through our services, through our outreaches, our classes, and all of our ministries. We aim to point people to Jesus. And we accomplish that vision through our mission, which is our three E's. You've probably heard this over and over again, but we believe in it. It's our mission. The three E's are to exalt the Lord, to equip his people, and to engage the world, which is in need of his love. So when we give here at our church, we aren't just giving towards a building or towards the utilities or to keep the carpets clean. Yeah, the money does go towards that, but we are really giving to see a gospel-centered transformation happen in our community. Can I get an amen for that? You just saw what is going on at our, yes, it's true. And I'm the pastor that oversees missions and outreach here at Calvary. So I'm going to get a little bit passionate about this. I'm going to get a little bit excited because I get to see every single day what your generous donations and tithes go towards and the way that it's impacting the communities around both of our campuses. So like you saw in the video, Love Our Schools Day, we started off with just one partner school with just a couple hundred, I think it was like 150 volunteers six years ago. And now we are up to eight schools with over 500 volunteers showing up and not just beautifying campuses, but we're seeing actual discipleship happen, mentoring happening. And a lot of these schools now, instead of going to the district office when they have a problem, they call us first because they want us on their campuses. They see that it's more than just the tables being clean, but they're seeing actual transformation happen. And we have these great testimonies every year of not just the families, but the faculty and the staff that are getting to meet Jesus because of you guys and because of your offerings here at Calvary. So that's incredible. We also have a street ministry that goes every other Saturday down to downtown Phoenix to feed the unhoused community and the addicted and the lost. They give them food. They preach them uh, the gospel and give them a worship service. And they see lives get changed there every single week or every week they're down there, see salvations happen. And as you've probably noticed around both of our campuses, we're seeing more and more of the unhoused community come into our communities and I promise you, us as a staff and our teams are working hard with Phoenix Rescue Mission, with the city of Phoenix and Glendale and our police officers to come up with really meaningful, impactful, gospel-centered, transformational ways for these people to get resources that they need and to meet Jesus. So there's going to be more to come on how you guys can get plugged in with ministering to the people right that are literally on our campuses and around our communities. And also... As, you, as Pastor Bill said, we just started a daycare, an early learning center on our central campus. And we're seeing families come in that before didn't have access to this kind of care because we are a DES certified um, daycare, which is allowing families that typically would be priced out of having 
that kind of care for their children in such a nice facility. We're allowing them in. They're having a state subsidy to allow them to be a part of this. In the the post-Roe world, this is one way that our church can come alongside at-risk families, families that are adoptive families or foster care families and bring them into our church so that they can have child or Christ-centered child care at our church. So just one more way that we are loving and ministering to the people in our community. So I just want to thank you for all of your kind donations and your offerings. So this is just what it goes to, just part of it. So Ellie's got something she wants to share as well. I just want to talk about the faithfulness of God for a second. We serve a faithful God. Scripture says the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And no matter what we might be going through financially, what we might be going through in our health, what we might be going through relationally or emotionally, God is faithful. He is. That's a fact. And don't just take my word for it. Over and over and over in scripture, God talks about how he can be trusted over a hundred times. That's what um, you said this morning. Over a hundred times, God talks about how he is trustworthy. We see story after story after story of God's faithfulness in the messed up lives of humanity. We know in our own lives that God has been faithful. We have testimony of God's faithfulness through our finances, through our um, health problems, through these difficult life circumstances. And it can be hard to simply trust God. But he says, I care about the birds of the field or of the air and the flowers in the field. I care about these things. We don't have a God, scripture says, that can't understand us in our weakness, but in every way has been tried and tested. He understands how hard it can be at times, but he is faithful. And here in just a couple of minutes, um, Pastor Zach and I are gonna read some stories of God's faithfulness from people in our congregation who have just sent in these amazing letters um, through this uh, series that we've been having on giving. They've sent in letters of testimony of how God's been faithful in their lives because what we can know is that God's been faithful to us in the past, so he'll be faithful to us now, and he will be faithful to us in the future, and his faithfulness will never end. He who began a good work in me will see it through to completion. We can know that that is true. So these testimonies, they are like a blood transfusion to our hearts. When we are feeling weary, when we are feeling tired, when we are feeling afraid, we can go back, recall, remember the faithfulness of God. And if you can't remember God's faithfulness in your life in this season, trust me, I've been there. I've been in seasons of my life where it's so discouraging, it's so hard, I have nothing and I can't remember anything, you can borrow one of these testimonies for a second. You can open up your scripture and borrow a testimony from a character in scripture. These things really happened. So we're gonna read these testimonies as blood transfusions for our faith right now to um, empower us in everything that the Lord has called us to do. Like she said, there's, these are some testimonies that were sent in of people um, in our congregation on how tithing or giving has really transformed their lives and their faith. So this one says, there's been many moments in my life as a Christian where tithing has been hard. I would often look at my bills every month and see no room for anything else. 
but I knew that I had been faithfully called to give generously to the Lord in the work of the ministry. Therefore, I committed myself to give no matter the circumstance. In this commitment, I have had countless times where the Lord has provided right when I needed it. One such story was when I first got married. I was still driving my first car, and it was on its last leg. Who's had a car there before? Um, (laughs) I had numerous occasions where I didn't know if it was even going to be able to get where I was going. Every time I would get in the car to start the engine, it was an act of faith, if you know what I mean. Every month, I was tempted to cut back my tithe and start making a car payment. Every time it happened, I would find faith arise in me to keep giving my tithe. So in faith, I kept giving and I prayed for the Lord's provision. About a month after my prayer, I got an email from a close friend who told me that he was buying a new car and felt like he should give me his old one. I asked how much he wanted for the car, thinking maybe it was a typo, and he insisted that he wanted to give me the old car as a gift. I looked at the car and it had less than 100,000 miles on it, and it was near perfect condition. I was in awe of his generosity of the Lord's provision in my time of need. He had truly answered my prayers. Now, it was important to note, I don't think it was because I gave enough money and had enough faith that God provided a new car. My giving was rather a tangible representation of my commitment to rely on the Lord and the truth that he provides. I'm truly blessed and thankful that the Lord takes care of me. This is why I will always declare my trust in God by giving to his church. Amen. This person writes in and says, it's probably been a couple of decades since I was convicted by God to fully trust him with our finances. And we committed to tithing 10% to the church plus occasional extra offerings or sponsorships through other ministries. I felt he was saying I didn't fully trust him if I was holding something as significant as money back from him. He provides for us and lets us control 90%, asking only a tenth to support his work through the church. We've seen God stretch the life out of our cars, our houses, our appliances, and all other consumables when we live frugally with a loose grip on our money. And it's been so cool to be able to help other people when we see a need. Over the years, he has never failed. And we have seen a consistent increase of our income in that we've slowly increased the percentage as, as we give and as we felt led and he has provided. Sometimes we get to thinking that what we give the Lord could easily cover a couple car payments each month, but we know we're investing in eternal things and God keeps our paid for vehicles running and provides when they break down or need to be replaced. I believe God doesn't fully have our heart until he has our wallet. Jesus said, our heart is where our treasure is. I want to keep that in his hands. I feel for those who are struggling, yet don't put God first in their finances. They're missing out on so much. With increasing uncertain times we're in, I can't imagine being on our own without God's hand of protection and blessing on our lives. We've got just two more quick ones that people wrote in. This one says, I just wanted to tell you that you're right when you say you can't outgive God. I had had a very good paying job, and I made it a point to give 10 a 10% tithe to Calvary first because that is where I receive my primary discipling and education on how to walk in the Christian life. Thank you for Calvary Phoenix and all the great teaching. I was also led to give to other causes over the years, but that was always above the 10% tithe for Calvary. Even though I was giving more than 10% each month from our household income, we never experienced lack. In fact, we continued to prosper and made even more money at work, and that allowed me to give even more. I don't have that high-paying job anymore, 
but I've continued to give the same amount. And guess what? I don't miss it. I've continued to prosper and all my needs have been met by the Lord. It's a cool testimony. And here's the last one. This is our family story. They start out. Giving is a priority for us. We have found God provides for us, not just for our needs, but for others. Twice we have experienced job loss, lasting for more than a year each time, diminishing our income. We have had serious health issues arise that require months of treatment and the costs associated with them. We have a child who has many extra needs, not often covered by his health care. We have often found ourselves evaluating what bills we have, what we may need to eliminate, and even questioning if we can continue giving to the ministries we support. It can cause a bit of anxiety thinking about tithing when you're not sure if you will be able to pay for your health care, medicine, daily bills, groceries. We prayed and continued to tithe. Throughout each of these life events, we have had what we need to maintain our commitments to ministry and to pay for our bills. God provided more than we needed during some of these times, allowing us to help others. The one thing we know and trust is that God is faithful. God is faithful. Pastor Mark talked about how we are to have open hands to the Lord. We are to have this posture of our hands up, open to receive his blessing, but also open so that we can pour that blessing down on others so that we can continue the work of ministry, so that we can go to the unhoused communities, so that we can go into our schools, so that we can go overseas through OCC, so that we can do these things, so that your life can be impacted, so that my life can be impacted. We have open hands so we can be a conduit of God's grace and mercy to those who don't know him, to help them receive his gospel, which is not a gospel of prosperity, but it's a gospel of faithfulness. He will be faithful. I promise you, he will be faithful. So Pastor Zach is going to close with a challenge for us today. I know, like I said at the beginning, that this is always the sermon that can make us squirm in our chair a little bit when we're talking about money. But it is such an important spiritual discipline. We talk about our spiritual health um, in all aspects of our lives. But this is always a hard one when we start touching our pocketbooks. So like she said, I just have a, a challenge for you. Wherever you're at on your giving journey, I know that these next couple months are the ones that are always the most stressful in the year for most of us financially. And like Pastor Mark said, God tells us here, we can test him. So if you're just beginning on your financial journey, this is probably the best time for you to do that, to step out in faith and just to test him, whether it's just in a small way or you want to work up towards that tithe, test him. And I promise, because it is a promise that God will respond to you in an amazing way. And shameless plug, because I, like I said, I am the pastor that oversees uh, missions and outreach here. If you'd like to jump into jump into missions and outreach here at Calvary. We're having a vision meeting at one o'clock here at the Northwest campus, uh, just to talk about the future of missions and outreach and the rest of the year. And uh, if you'd like to be a part of one of our teams that is doing uh, these outreaches to the schools and to the community around us, come up, come over there. We're going to have some food for you. So uh, one o'clock, we'd love to see you in there and to see you get plugged into the heartbeat of our church. So thank you guys. God bless you. Thanks for hearing us out. We love you. Well, the worship team is coming up and
as they do. This is something I, I want us to leave with. I'm thinking, for me, it's not so hard to talk about giving because, you know, I kind of feel like a lot of your spiritual dad. And I want my kids to be blessed. And you're missing out on blessings, and I don't want you to have that. It's hard times, and I want you to have blessings. But I want to end this way. I want to end with us focusing on the greatest giver of all. I want us to end looking at God and how much God has given to us. The Bible says, says this about Jesus. 2 Corinthians 8 9. You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. Listen to this. You are familiar with the generosity of our master, Jesus Christ. Rich as he was, he gave it all away for us in one stroke. He became poor, and we became rich. Amen? The Bible says, for God so loved the world that he what? He gave his only begotten son. God has given so much for us. Romans 5 verse 8 says, God shows his love for us while we were yet sinners in that Christ died for us. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 says, Behold, see, try to fathom what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. 1 John 4, 9 says, God showed us how much he loved us by sending his one and only Son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love, not that we've loved God, real love that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. God is the greatest giver. God is the best giver. Amen. Who could outgive God? Thank you, Lord, for my salvation. Thank you, Lord, for all you've given me. We talk about giving here. I focus on the giver right now. How about you guys? Focus on the giver. Focus on the Father. As I'm putting together the message, um, just something came to heart that I want to share with you. And uh, the Lord just gave me some things to say, and I normally don't do what I'm going to share with you. It's just not my thing. But it's what God has given us. And I want you to just think about it. And we're going to be overwhelmed by it. But he's given us love. He's given us grace. He's given us the truth. He's given us hope. He's given us his son. He's given us mercy. He's given us his word. He's given us peace. He's given us his joy. He's given us his song. He's given us his church. He's given us salvation. He's given us the gospel. He's given us a refuge. He's given us his comfort. He's given us new mercies. 
He's given us heaven. He's given us a pardon. He's given us power. He's given us a new life. He's given us the spirit. He's given us a purpose. He's given us a mission. He's given us a family. He's given us the bread of life. He's given us living water. He's given us understanding. He's given us our daily bread. He's given us a living hope. And he has given us redemption through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's stand up on our feet. God, give the Lord a praise. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. And let's turn our hearts now and let's just praise him for all that he's done.
Like the voice of one crying in the wilderness makes straight the way of the Lord, Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries is looking for those who will partner with us in this ministry of making a path straight for the Lord directly to the hearts of listeners. If you would like to partner with us to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and deliver the saving grace of our Lord to others through volunteering, through prayer, and through donations, please call us at 602 866 8999. That's 602 866 8999. The following program is called Equipping the Saints. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundsted, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. Now, if you're diligent to read the Scripture, and if you've read through the Bible, you'll know that in the Old Testament, false prophets infiltrated Israel. They infiltrated the nation of Israel and Judah. And in the Gospels, we see Jesus warning against false prophets. And it's in almost every New Testament book that we have warnings concerning false prophets and teachers. Jude speaks of certain people having crept in unnoticed, uh, turning the grace of God into licentiousness. We've seen in 2 Peter chapter 2 that false teachers will arise among you. Arise among you. And the Apostle Paul warned that evil men and imposters, this is 2,000 years ago, will proceed from bad to worse. Certainly in New Testament times there were many false teachers and false prophets, but now many years have gone by. And God's word is sure, as we see so clearly, that as he predicted, there would be false teachers among you in the church. Well, if you watch certain TV shows, you look at certain churches, it can be discouraging to see how prevalent false teaching is in the Christian community. How prevalent bad doctrine is and things that are just not right and people listening and following those things. It can be discouraging to see that. So I believe that brings us to what we're going to see today. How can we keep from being discouraged by false teachers as we see the certainty of judgment for the ungodly? Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at verses 4 through 10. 2 Peter 2, verses 4 through 10. Now the context of 2 Peter is he is writing to believers of a like faith in Jesus Christ. And he's writing this simply to a point to the reality that we grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, our relationship with him through the precious and magnificent promises that he has given us in his word. Do you remember we saw in chapter 1 that we have been given everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him, that's Jesus, through His precious and magnificent promises, that's the Word of God. And it's through His Word that we grow in our relationship with Him. And within that, He also calls us by faith to obey Him in the context of faith, that we as believers should be manifesting, if we have a real relationship with Jesus, 
moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. And if these things are ours and are increasing, we are neither useless or unfruitful in our relationship with Jesus. And then Peter says he is always ready to remind them of these things, to stir us up, that we would be able to call it to mind after he departed. And we know Peter is writing this letter. He's saying his departure is imminent. The Lord Jesus has made it known to him. And so having reminded them of the absolute reality and surety of the Scriptures, we see that the written word is more sure than even experience, even genuine experience that Peter experienced. And we do beautifully to heed God's word, to pay attention. And we should know something, first of all, the end of chapter 1, that no prophecy of Scripture or the written word is becomes of one's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came about by an act of human will, but men moved by the Spirit spoke from God. It's God's word, so we do well to pay attention to it. And then in chapters 2 and 3 of Second Peter, we have Peter's warnings concerning those who would be a hindrance to us doing well, to us following what God says in His Word by His Spirit in the context of faith. And we saw so clearly that in this final letter, Peter was very concerned and gave warnings in great detail, which we're going to look at and be reminded of today. So how can we keep from being discouraged by false teachers Again, we're going to see the certainty of judgment for the ungodly and especially for false teachers. Now, last time we started in verse 1 of chapter 2, and we're going to start today in verse 4, but I want to read up through that. So join me in reading Second Peter chapter 1. We'll start at verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Then we begin our passage. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example for those who would live ungodly thereafter. And if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, For by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day with their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge in the flesh and its corrupt desires and despise authority, daring self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. You're saying that's a lot. There's a lot of references there. Well, hopefully we'll be able to see what we need to see to understand the intent of what Peter, inspired by the Spirit, is writing here. And I believe the first point in how we can keep from being discouraged if we are believers is that we must understand that God has already demonstrated He knows how to hold the unrighteous or ungodly under punishment for their ultimate judgment. Notice our passage in verse 4 begins with the term for. 
It's an explanation for if God did not spare angels. And then notice there's these ifs here. There's an if right there. For if. And then in verse 6, there's an if in italics. And then in verse 7, there's an if in italics. And if he rescued righteous law. The implication is these pieces are all one if statement. If this has happened, then we see in verse 9, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. If God would punish angels, destroy the world, preserve Noah, reduce Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, and deliver Lot, then he already knows how, as we're going to see, and continues to know how to hold the wicked under punishment, but to deliver the righteous from temptation. That's the basic context or grammatical structure of our passage today. So then our passage is one big if-then statement, which is an explanation of what has been said. Again, look at verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, and then then, ultimately. It's an explanation of something, right? It's an explanation. So what is he explaining here? You might remember what we saw in the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, which I just read. Remember, we saw that God's Word is everything we need for our walk with Jesus Christ. If our hearts are right and the Spirit is working in our lives. We've been given everything we need for life and godliness. We have His precious and magnificent promises, so we do well to heed them because it's God's Word brought forth by God, right? And then with that, we have a contrast in chapter 2. But in light of God's Word, which is His Word alone, which you do well to heed, it's one thing to hear it, it's another thing to obey it. By the way, there's a lot of people that know God's Word and hear God's Word all the time but don't heed it in their hearts. Don't heed it in their hearts. The Pharisees knew it really well, but they didn't heed it. So we have a contrast here to heeding God's word, which is his word, chapter 2, verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you. There's going to be bad guys, just like there were in Israel. Bad guys and gals. They're going to arise. False teachers. And what are they going to do? Middle of verse 1, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. They're going to introduce these ruinous teachings, teachings that ruin your walk with Jesus. You're not going to go to hell if you're a believer, but your walk with Christ can be temporarily ruined by wrong teaching that gets you off of a dependence on Jesus Christ and a humble dependence and trust in him, allowing his word to work in your life. And he says, destructive heresies, even deny, even up to the point where they would deny the master who bought them. But they are bringing swift destruction upon themselves, right? Bringing swift destruction. And there's going to be damage in the church, in the church, verse 2. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. The term sensuality speaks of licentiousness. It's a license to sin. We always think of it sexually speaking, but it's not that way. It's a license not to forgive someone. It's a license to act differently than what God's Word says. It's a license to sin. Certainly it includes sensuality, but they will introduce those things. And many will follow. We see that in churches these days. People who claim to follow Jesus Christ may be true believers, but just have no conviction of sin in their lives. They live a life that is useless and unfruitful for Jesus. Their walk is ruined because of these things. And the way of truth is going to be blasphemed, spoken against. The way of truth. And then in verse 3, notice what it says, And in their greed 
They will exploit you with false words. Hey, this is going to happen, it's saying. The term greed speaks of an intense, selfish desire for something, especially wealth, power, position, gratification, whatever it might be. These people desire these things, and they get it through ministering to people. That's what they get it from. They receive power, position, sensual gratification, whatever it might be. Position. They do it because they're greedy. In their greed, it says they will exploit you. The term exploit we saw last time means to do business. That's their business is to exploit you. And what will they exploit you with? False. The term plastos. We get our word plastic from molded words. They're going to take the scriptures. They're going to twist it and mold it to exploit you. That's what Peter is warning us about. Bad guys are going to be in the church. And we need to be on guard that we are not exploited by false words. Carried away by well-crafted words. As Peter would say in the end of this book, we should grow in the grace of knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ rather than being carried away by the air of unprincipled men. Chapter 3, verse 17. The reality is there are dangers to our walk with Jesus and they're in the church. There are those who will subvert, diminish, attack, lessen, dismiss, and twist and mock the Word of God. We see that. They carefully craft their words to exploit you. They're evil people. But God doesn't miss a beat. Look at this passage here. The end of verse 3. Their judgment from long ago is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. It may appear that they are getting away with it. You look at the church these days and you go, oh man, they are getting away with it. It may appear that way, but they're not. And then our passage is an explanation of how God has never let anyone get away with sin, and He never will let them get away with sin, especially false teachers. That's what our passage is about. So notice verse 3, And they agreed they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. And here's the explanation that we're going to look at today. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness, reserved for judgment. For if God would do this, 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 and this, then of course he's going to take care of these false teachers and the ungodly, right? So we have three specific examples of God's previous judgment that he shows he knows how to deal with sin. And two examples of God delivering and preserving believers in the midst of those judgments. Two examples, but three. So we have the first example. If God committed, verse 4, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them into pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Angels are ministering servants. They are spirit beings. And we know from Revelation chapter 12 that when Satan fell, he took a third of the angels with him. Those are fallen angels. Those are demons. They're fallen angels. And at this point, I believe our passage here alludes back to Genesis chapter 6. It alludes to a situation right before the fall. Genesis 6 and Jude and 1 Peter also alludes to it in chapter 3. Now something we need to recognize here as we look at this is that these demons spoken of here, they are demons. They've fallen that when they sinned. And they are a special group. They are a special group that are now 
had been cast into hell, at least we'll see what that word says in a minute, committed them into pits of darkness reserved for judgment. This group of angels who sinned are in bondage right now. And there, as we see in the rest of Scripture, there are other fallen angels who are not in bondage. Remember the demon speaking to Jesus? Have you come to torment us before the time, a son of God? He was free, awaiting his judgment. But there's a special group that sinned so horribly, God used them as an example of judgment. And that's what we're seeing here, that God does not let sin go by. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them through them into hell and committed them into pits of darkness reserved for judgment. There's two parallel statements. Cast them into hell and threw them into pits of darkness. Now, it's unfortunate that your Bibles translate this word hell here, and you might have a note in your Bibles, but it comes from the Greek word tartarus. Tartarus, sounds like tartar sauce, right? Tartarus, right? The usual word in Scripture translated hell is Gehenna, and that speaks of a garbage dump that was off the edge of Jerusalem that would be continually burning. They'd throw trash and you know dead stuff in there, you know? That's what hell is like, right? And Jesus used that word to describe the place that was prepared for the devil and his angels. But here, this seems to speak of a place before their judgment. The term is Tartarus. And this term speaks of basically a place of punishment and torment. Place of torment. And it appears to be a temporal place where these fallen demons who sinned are awaiting They were cast into this place reserved for their future judgment. Their future judgment. The passage speaks of a smaller group within a larger group that sinned so heinously, God brought immediate consequences on them. Now what is this line that this group of angels crossed? What is this line that caused God to throw them into Tartarus and to put them in pits, those same parallel pits of darkness? Well, I believe it's the situation spoken of in Genesis chapter 6 in which the sons of God, that's a term used almost exclusively in the Old Testament of angels, by the way, in the Old Testament, cohabitated with the daughters of men, and the results were those freaks, the Nephilim. There's a lot of different views out there, and if I did have just Genesis, I wouldn't be confident in what I was saying, but we have this passage here in Jude, which I believe explain it. Now you can get the message I preached in Genesis chapter 6, in which I go into this in detail. I'm not going to explain every aspect of this. Genesis 6, we do go into that. But here, there was a situation in which the sons of God came upon the daughters of men. Now, the strongest biblical evidence for what I believe is happening here and in our passages in the book of Jude. Turn to Jude. It's just up right before Revelation. Right before Revelation. Now, in the book of Jude, it's one chapter, and Jude is writing that we would contend earnestly for the faith, ultimately because bad guys have crept in unnoticed, who turn the grace of God into licentiousness. The same stuff we're seeing in Second Peter. And he begins to affirm the reality of what God thinks of these wicked men by giving examples of past judgment, and he includes a description of what we're seeing in Second Peter. Jude, verse 5. Now, I desire to remind you, Though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And then look at this. And angels who did not, what? Keep their own domain, but abandon their proper abode, 
he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. That's what he's talking about in our passage, right? That's what he's talking about. It's exactly what we see in Second Peter. There is a group of angels who are bound. Satan prowls about like a roaring lion. He's not bound right now, but these ones are bound. They abandoned their own domain. They did not keep their own domain. They, they abandoned their proper abode. They crossed a line. And God, when they did so, put them under punishment. Now, what type of line did they cross? What boundary did they cross? Look at verse 7. Just as, this is really important, just as it is saying, hey, I'm going to give you an example of something that is just like what I just said. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since in the same way, listen to those terms, same way as these, these speaking of the angels, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. If you know the situation of Sodom and Gomorrah, I'm not going to, I will talk a little bit about it later because it comes up in our passage. But when the two angels came to take Lot out and his family, there were those wicked men of Sodom who wanted to do things with those angels, which were very bad. In the same way, it was this evil. I believe that speaks of indulging in gross immorality, going after strange flesh. Jude verse 6, and angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode. Verse 7, just as Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities around them, since they went in the same way, these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. We know the story. And exhibited as an example in undergoing punishment of eternal fire. So I believe we have evidence that the angels in Genesis chapter 6 who could take on the form of men, we see that in Genesis chapter 18, they actually ate with Lot, ate food with him in Genesis 19. They could take on that appearance of men. The bad demons, they, Genesis 6, crossed the line. And God, they did not keep their domain, they abandoned their proper abode, and God took care of them immediately. He judged them. Now, this is speculation on my part, but I'm just going to share my opinion. It's probably thought that as Satan wanted to corrupt the line of human beings, that he understood from what God had declared that through Eve's seed would come the Messiah. There would be one who would take on human flesh and be the Savior of the world. And it appears Satan tried to do something, or his angels who did it were condemned immediately. And I think actually within that, in 1 Peter chapter 3, And when it speaks of Christ having died in the flesh and made alive in the spirit, he made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. What was the proclamation? He's won. It is finished. Victorious. You lost. So with this in mind, God brought judgment immediately. Back to our passage in 2 Peter. Whether you understand what they did or you agree with what I share, that's not important. They crossed a line and God judged them. God judged them. Verse 4, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell or, or Tartarus, and committed them to pits of darkness, reserved for judgment. They are being held for judgment, and then their final punishment in the lake of fire, which is prepared for the devil and his angels, by the way. So the point is, God has already demonstrated he will judge. God has already demonstrated in this example he will judge, and they are awaiting it. But there's more examples. Look at verse 5. And did not, and it's the, the subject is God, by the way. Now, the Greek word has that subject inherent, he. And he, 
did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness. ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.